So we need to know what, in terms of discipleship, can be distracting to us. Uh, what can be destructive to growing as disciples of Jesus. So we're going to get specific about discipleship by studying 1 Timothy. Timothy was a disciple of the Apostle Paul. And he was a pastor, he became a pastor, who in turn was to disciple the church in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. In uh, chapter 3, verse 15 of, of 1 Timothy, Paul says that he is writing so that Timothy may know how one ought to behave in God's household. So, like in light of the video, behave in God's household. Which is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. You might not be surprised to know that the way that we are to live as members of God's household is often very different from the way the world would have us live. That's why we need the ongoing discipleship of Christ's teaching through, through the apostles as we have in 1 Timothy. So if you'd stand, we're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away from into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or things about which they make competent assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, Understanding this, that the the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Father, would you teach us, be our teacher, help your word to be effective through what, what I speak, make, may it be clear what I speak, may your spirit be working in our hearts to direct us to your truth, to make it strong and helpful to us this day. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. You be seated. So in verse 1, Paul's introducing himself. As an apostle of Christ, there was trouble in the Ephesians church. People were turning away from Paul's gospel and, and were following a teaching that was off base. Those who were teaching myths and misusing God's law. So an apostle was sent, means a sent one, one who is sent as an official representative, bearing the authority of the one who sent him. So as an apostle of Christ, he was had Christ's authority to, to, to lay down the truth. Paul wasn't an apostle because he applied for the job, but because he was commanded by the command of God to become an apostle. Christ established the church through the apostles. 
Today we have the, the writings of the apostles and their associates. It's called the New Testament. So we still have that foundation that the church was based upon in the Bible. It is our authority for what is true for our salvation from God our Savior, as Paul says, God is our Savior, and for our hope as Christ Jesus himself is our hope. And in verse 2, Paul uh, says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. And so this, this is the letter to Timothy, but it's CC, the church in Ephesus. So it's going to be read to the church in Ephesus, but it's to Timothy as well, Timothy in particular. Paul first met Timothy on his second missionary journey. We read about it in Acts 16 when he was in the city of Lystra in modern-day Turkey. Timothy had a Jewish mother who was a believer and a Greek dad who was not a believer. Paul says Timothy was his true child in the faith. So what he means by that, he's genuine, he's the real thing, he's, he's a legitimate son in the faith, in that he um, so is able to represent Paul in Ephesus. He, he, he follows Paul's life, he follows his teaching, he's able to teach for Paul. This is important because Paul has some difficult tasks for Timothy to do. The Ephesians church needs to listen to Timothy as they would Paul. And so Paul uh, closes his introduction by saying, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So grace is God's undeserved favor. Mercy is, is God's compassionate help to the helpless. And peace is God's gift of reconciliation that produces a stability and a calmness, a strength. These are gifted by God and Christ Jesus, who through his life, death, and resurrection accomplished what was needed to gift these to us. And Timothy desperately needed grace, mercy, and peace for the, the work that he faced, the challenge he was facing in this congregation, which we see in verse 3. Paul said he urged Timothy to remain at Ephesus. Timothy wasn't planning on staying there. He was going to go off somewhere else. But Paul says, sorry, bud, you got to stick around. You, you, you need to, you're going to have to stay there and deal with some false teaching. You need to charge or command certain persons not to teach different doctrines. Heterodox is the word that conflicts with the gospel-centered truth Paul had laid down. So in the, basically, in the original Greek, what Paul says is, Stop it! Tell him to stop it! See, I told you that video was going to come in handy. In verse 4, he continues saying, Tell them not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So what were they teaching? Paul doesn't get real specific, but he says they're devoting themselves to, they're holding firmly to, they were obsessed with myths and endless genealogies. Whatever, whatever the specific myths were, they were false. They were, were not based in anything real. Whereas the gospel absolutely depends on true historical events. Uh, Jesus, as Son of God, truly had to come in take on human flesh. He really um, died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. If this was just a myth, the Christian faith is just another man-made religion invented by people that cannot save. And they're all, he says they are devoted to myths and endless genealogies. They may have been speculating on stories about early biblical characters, uh, like who are the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6, getting into just obscure things that, that had no real answers. 
they, they could have been obsessed with some of the biblical or extra-biblical genealogies. Some do get obsessed with gene- genealogies. You know anybody like that who's obsessed with genealogies? It was actually pretty helpful for, for me, for my marriage, to find out that my wife is a descendant of the Viking uh, William the Conqueror. It really helped explain a lot of things. So sometimes, sometimes genealogies are helpful, but getting obsessed with them is not necessarily helpful. It's true. Whatever the content of the genealogies, the problem was they produced useless speculations. So what is problematic with some teaching is that is not gospel-centered is not only when it includes myths and, and falsehoods, but also when it promotes useless speculations about things that don't matter, things that don't lead to increasing godliness and strengthening faith. That's what... That is what Paul means when he says the speculations don't lead to the stewardship from God that is by faith. He says they don't lead to the stewardship that is from God that is by faith. The word stewardship has to do with ordering and managing a household. So the myths and genealogies had to do with um, not helping learn how to live as members of God's household. Not doing things God's way. So... We can get bogged down in things that don't really help us grow in godliness, just, just things that are useless, that aren't necessarily horrible in and of themselves, but they're just useless for helping us grow in godliness. The way we live as stewards who follow God's ways of doing things, of ordering his household, is by faith, faith in the apostolic teaching, which we have in, in the New Testament. So we need to hold fast to the word of God. Whatever else your profession is, whatever else you do in school, whatever else you occupy your time with, you need the Word of God to give definition, to be the filter for what all, all that you do. So the qu- a question is, are you strengthening your stewardship, your life, ordering it by God's Word? Are you being a steward of God's Word in your day-to-day life? Major on God's Word. Test everything by Scripture. So God's Word has a goal. Our discipleship has a goal. Apostolic instruction, gospel-centered instruction, has a goal, and Paul tells about it in verse 5. He says the aim of the apostolic charge, or the goal of gospel-centered instruction, is love. It's love. So it's pretty easy to test. Are you truly following the Word of God? Is Are you growing in love? Love is the summary word for, for the life that is produced through faith in Christ. It's a response to God's grace expressed in sacrificial action for others. What creates this love? Is it just natural human love that, that we just learn to, to, to love on the, out of our, the goodness of our humanity? Well, no. Paul says it's love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So love comes from a pure heart. It comes from a heart cleansed from sin. Our hearts are our whole inner being, our desires, our will. Through the cleansing work of Christ's death for us, he cleanses our hearts from sin, from sin's warping self-centeredness, and purifies them for loving as he loved. Which we don't do perfectly in this life, but we do it truly, if we've had a work of grace, Christ's death and resurrection in our lives. Love comes from a good conscience. 
our conscience is that within us which condemns wrong and, and commends right. A good conscience inclines us to accept gospel-centered teaching as good, which results in our growth and love. In Christ, our discipleship involves having our conscience renewed and trained to hate what, what is wrong and love what is right in God's sight. And love comes from a sincere or unhypocritical faith. This means you are truly trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not putting on religious front for self-serving purposes. You see how desperately you need Christ and, and you're really clinging to him by faith. Putting your trust in him for salvation from sin and, for, and living for God. So this is the goal of discipleship, to love God from, and people from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It's really that simple. But Paul continues addressing the challenges that they were facing in the Ephesians church in verse 6. Once again, Paul points out certain persons. So we're really curious who are these certain persons, but he, he's not naming them yet. He actually names them a little bit later, a couple of them. Certain persons, these certain persons have swerved from love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. They have abandoned the goal of gospel-centered instruction. They have strayed from the teaching that would produce Christian love. In other words, they were not just turning from the, from the truth, but from the life that the truth produces. So they're rejecting the truth itself, and, and they're rejecting the, the life that God has called us to live. They abandoned love, the fruit of the gospel, and wandered away into vain discussion, into meaningless talk. They're not interested in growing in Christian love and godliness. Rather, they, they like being seen as clever and as having specialized knowledge that only the spiritually elite can grasp. They love indulging in vain discussion that gives the appearance that they have deep insights that confuses the average person. They have no desire to help people grow in Christ. They think of themselves as having higher knowledge. The fruit of their swerving from love is fruitless babbling. Like Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have all knowledge but have in love, I am nothing. In verse 7, he continues talking about describing what, what their, their desires are. He says they desire to be teachers of the law. These certain persons wanted to be teachers of the Old Testament law probably because they thought it would bolster their authority and perception of expertise, but they didn't understand what they were saying or what they were dogmatically asserting. Do you know anybody like that? They're not understanding what they're saying doesn't keep them from saying it. They just keep talking and, and, hey, what are you talking about? I don't know. I'm just talking. That's what they were doing. Since believing the gospel is necessary for, for love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, it's not surprising they don't understand what they're teaching about, teaching about in terms of the law because they don't believe the gospel, so they don't have love. And since loving God and people is the sum of the law, they can't be teachers of the law since they can't really understand it. And then in verse 8, Paul, Paul says, now the law is good. We know that the law is good if properly used. And he said this in Romans 7 as well. He says the law itself is holy, righteous, and good. But you, you need to use the law properly. You need to use the law lawfully. 
What is the proper use of the law? Well, there's a lot more we could talk about, but we're going to focus on what Paul's point is here. How are the false teachers using the law that's, that's wrong? And Paul says in verse 9, we understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just. It's not laid down for the righteous person. The restrictive function of the law, of, of the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, does not apply to those who have been counted right with God through faith in Christ and are living righteous lives. It's not for the righteous person, not for the justified person, not for the person who's living according to God's truth. It is not for regulating the lives of those who by faith in the gospel, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It's not for, it's not for that, it's not for that person. Now, this doesn't mean that believers shouldn't value the law as an expression of God's good moral will, because the law is good. It's, it's, it's a true expression of God's moral design for how we are to live. It just means that the believers in Christ are not under the law as the regulating power in their, in their lives. And they will never be judged by the law because Christ took their judgment on the cross. So the law is not for the righteous people in that sense, Paul is saying. So Paul gives a list of the kinds of people the law is for. It's quite a list. It's of extreme lawbreakers. What, what does Paul mean when he says that the law is for these kinds of people? What does he mean? Well, for one thing, he means it's for in them and the, the law points out their sin is sinful. Regardless of what they say, what they're doing is, is wrong in God's sight. And it's also for these people in that it's God is going to judge them by the law. Um, Paul said in, in Romans chapter 2, even if they don't have the written law, the work of the law is, is written in God's in our, in our hearts. In, it's God's moral design for us as people and it's hardwired into our hearts. Apart from sin, we would have not needed to have a written law. We would just do it. And it's, you're all the more accountable if you have the written law. So it's, it's for um, people because God's going to judge them by it if they're not in Christ. Now, they could repent and turn to Christ and be saved. They can't pay off the law's demands themselves is the point. They need Christ's payment of because the, the law assigns debt to those who break it, that it must receive God's judgment as payment. And the only way to not have to pay for this, your sins against God's law yourself is for Christ's payment. So Christ can pay for you, or you've got to pay it yourself. Thus, the law can only be for condemnation. It cannot justify. It cannot make you right in God's sight. It's, it can only be for condemnation in terms of what it actually does. It can never be the means of being justified in God's sight. Now for the list. Ready for the list? Okay, this, this is a rough list. The law is for the lawless and disobedient. The law, in other words, the law is for the lawless, those who are anti-law, for anarchists. It's for the disobedient, the rebellious, who rebel against God's authority. The law is for the ungodly and sinners. It's for those who have no regard for devotion to God and who are open sinners, who, who are just loud and proud sinners. And if 
that doesn't cover it yet. Paul gives two other words, unholy and profane. It's for the unholy and profane. It's for those who indulge in the godless worldly pursuits and whose attitudes and worldviews are totally shaped by the world rather than God's word. All right, so those generically, that's who the law is for. Now Paul gets more specific. He says it's for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Or some translations say those who kill their fathers and mothers. And, and so this is a violation of the fifth commandment. It's not honoring your father and mother to beat them up, nor to kill them, obviously. And so if you're one of those people, the law condemns you. Fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. The law is for murderers. Murder is wrong. I hope it's not news to any of you. Murder is a sin. Sixth commandment says that. Then in verse 10, he continues on. Uh, the, the law is for the sexually immoral. That word is porneia. Uh, it violates the seventh commandment. It was a catch-all term that included all sexual activity outside of male-female relations within marriage. In other words, adultery, prostitution, premarital sexual interaction, and pornography, to name a few. We have a problem with that in our culture. There are a lot of Christians today who don't think it's a big deal. It's like, what's the deal with that? It's just natural. Losing sight of, of God's seventh commandment, that all sex outside of marriage is wrong. As well as men who practice homosexuality. It's a word that literally means men who sleep or have sexual relations with, with men. God's laws for pointing this out as a violation of his will. It is against his design. God's law exposes as wrong attempts to redefine homosexuality as acceptable. And the pressure is huge to capitulate to that. You're, you're weird, you're a bigot, you're, you're crazy to, to imply this today. The law uh, is for enslavers. It violates the Eighth Commandment against stealing. The law is for those who kidnap people and sell them into slavery. So the law is the law condemns human trafficking, human traffickers. The law is for liars and perjurers. It violates the Ninth Commandment against bearing false witness. The law convicts those who deceive with their words and those who swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth but tell anything but the truth. And the law is for condemning whatever else is, is against sound teaching. So everything else he didn't say that is against sound teaching, the law is for condemning that. Uh, the word for sound in this sentence is a medical term that means healthy. It's, we get the word hygiene from it. The law exposes this as sinful whatever is opposed to healthy, hygienic teaching. And Paul makes clear what that healthy teaching is in verse 11. He says, it's whatever is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, whatever is in accordance with the gospel. So Paul's point has been that the law is not for those who are right with God and who are living righteously through faith in the gospel of Christ. Rather, it is for those who are not right with God through faith in the gospel and so are not living righteously. 
It is through the gospel that the lawless, the disobedient, the rebellious, and the ungodly are able to repent and believe in Christ and be saved and changed. This is how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. I don't have that on the screen, but if you have your Bible handy, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9-11. through 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9-11, through 11, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And the great news is, he says, such were some of you. Such were some of you. You, you, you were that, some of you. But there was a, a transformation that took place. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there is hope apart from the law. The law can do nothing for them other than condemn people who are characteristic, characterized by those sins. But it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves and transforms sinners, not the law. In the Roman world of Paul's day, the word gospel, which means good news, often referred to the announcement of the good news of the military and political victories of the emperor. So in our political context today, you might hear, we might say the gospel of so-and-so winning the election or the gospel of so-and-so's great political decision they made. The apostles' use of gospel was meant to declare a much greater, a much gooder news of salvation through an infinitely greater Lord, Jesus Christ. What makes the gospel so transformational and superior to the law is it is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It's the gospel of God's glory. The gospel reveals the glory of God It declares and displays his excellent goodness and his awesome power and wisdom in accomplishing our salvation, in accomplishing a death-defeating, sin-conquering, righteousness-gifting, eternal life-giving salvation for his people. The gospel isn't about me. It's not about you. The gospel is about the glory of God in, in Jesus Christ, who calls me into enjoyment of his glory. And Paul additionally says that the gospel is about the glory of the blessed God. What does he mean by that? What does it mean for God to be blessed? We, we, we talk about us being blessed. We want a blessing. But what does it mean to say God is blessed? Well, the, the basic meaning, the primary meaning of the word blessed is happy. Happy. Or you can define it for sure as, as enjoying favorable circumstances. So blessed, hey, good things are happening to me. And it, it can just mean that. But, but the basic meaning of the word is it's happy, happy circumstances, happy things are happening. And God being God enjoys favorable circumstances, even though he endures a lot of stuff from his creation, a lot of rebellion. But because of who he is, he is not fretting over how he is going to put down the rebellion and establish everlasting peace and righteousness. He's not worried about that. He's not like, oh man, is this going to work? How, how am I going to do this? This is so hard. The people are just so, I do good things for them and they just keep rebelling. What am I going to do? He's not doing that. Yes, 
True enough, he hates sin and grieves over the evil that he permits. Amazing, God grieves over the evil that he permits. But he will finally remove. But he is fundamentally a happy God. He's happy. He's not in denial that there are still a lot of unhappy happenings to be resolved. He's all over these unhappy things. He's going to resolve them. He's going to fix them. He's absolutely guaranteed to remake the universe a happy place in in the new heavens and new earth. He's going to do it. And don't get hung up on on the difference in our English words, joy versus happiness. We, We often say joy is not based on circumstances. Happiness is based on circumstances. So joy is better than happiness. Well, if you define it that way, that's true. But you can take the fact that the Bible reveals God as a blessed, happy God, that you can just say that happiness is a good thing. And we're going to be eternally happy in the new heavens and new earth. And so this week you can share with somebody, if you didn't pick up anything else from this message besides stop it, um, you can tell, hey, do you know that God is happy? He's a happy God? Well, Paul finishes by saying he has been entrusted with the gospel of of the glory of, of this blessed, happy God, and so as we are entrusted with the gospel. That is why he starts his letter by urging Timothy to tell certain persons to stop it. To stop teaching what is contrary to the gospel, which produces useless speculations rather than a happy and good ordering of God's household. This is the gospel of the goal of gospel centered discipleship to love God and love people from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Living in gospel-produced love does produce happiness. Father, we thank you that you've given us a powerful, sin-killing, law-fulfilling, life-giving, happiness-producing gospel that produces in us love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. May our discipleship be blessed of you to continue to do that. By your grace, Father, produce in us this love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And may we just ruthlessly cling to your word that tells us the truth about what it is to live as your disciple and keeping the gospel central in all that we're about, all that we do as church, all that we do in our families, all that we do, all that we live for, all that we love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.